Introducing the new era of digital identity with Socure, the leading provider of digital identity verification solutions. The world is shifting to digital services. More and more people are expecting everyday transactions and government services to be readily available online. But this shift has also created new opportunities for fraudsters and identity thieves, which can put individuals and organizations at risk. That's why Socure has developed a suite of cutting-edge digital identity verification solutions that can help prevent fraud while also ensuring equitable access for all demographics. Socure leverages machine learning, AI, and biometric capture to provide fast and accurate verification, even for those without traditional forms of identification. Whether you're a government agency looking to modernize your identity verification processes or a business looking to protect your customers and prevent fraud, Socure has the expertise and technology to help. Join the digital identity revolution with Socure and help build a more secure, efficient, and equitable world. Visit Socure.com to learn more. That's S-O-C-U-R-E.com. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. Right? Like CX feels so fluffy for a long time, felt fluffy because it felt like, oh, there's emotions and humans involved. But because the government isn't as a entity used to like personifying the recipient, it feels like there's more of an undertaking required to say like we have to care about people than there should be because they're already serving people. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. And I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving holiday and enjoyed a little bit of time away to refresh and recharge before going back to work. Um, Recently, I was listening to a podcast episode, uh, one of my favorites, Jay Shetty, and he was talking about ways to avoid anxiety during the holidays, which I know all of us kind of face in some form or fashion. And one of the things he talked about is there's probably gonna be something, someone at some point that's gonna trigger you. Uh, They always trigger you or it always triggers you when you get around family. And his advice was really good. It was not to hope it won't happen, but to expect it and be ready to deal with it. And I think it's great advice, but where my brain went is to government services, which I know sounds weird, but let me tell you why. I don't know about you, but I have to gear myself up sometimes to engage with government on something. And one example is my passport's expiring and I need to get a new one and I haven't done it yet because I know the process isn't easy. There's multiple steps and I have to go somewhere at some point. And every time I do things like this, I'm always thinking there's a better way. And I go into it expecting to be let down or triggered, but that shouldn't be the case. And my guest today not only knows a lot about this topic, but she also I know is going to have some great advice for those listening on how to make it better. She spent several years at the beginning of her career helping solve this problem from the inside, and now is the strategic lead for customer experience and innovation at Granicus and an adjunct professor at UVA, which is new, and I know we're going to be definitely covering that today. 
I'm talking about none other than Charlotte Lee. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here, Charlotte. Thank you for having me. So Charlotte, as we as we open up our conversation, tell me a little bit about what catalyzed your passion in customer experience. I think in, I can tell the story better in retrospect, but I started in human-centered design and user experience design in the IT field. Um, and it was a lot of translation between like legacy systems and like how people really use it. And it just was like this mess of a time you know, 10-ish plus years ago um, when we were starting to introduce user experience design into government. And at that point, I was so new in my career. I had just started my company and I was one of very few. Um, so it was totally okay for like a very young Asian woman to come in and be like, I'm an expert in user experience because no one else was, right? And so there was like this, you know, lead up to it, of course, there was the design um, and the interest I've always had in the intersection of technology, government design, right? But um, that's a story that's only like, you know, peaceable after the fact. But when it was happening, it just felt like I was pursuing what I could contribute to technology at that moment in time. Um, and then I think personally, when I reflect on it, is that my interaction, my adult, like conscious mind is informed by my experiences being a first generation immigrant um, you know, entrepreneur, first generation college person, um, coming emerging into this sort of like between digital and analog government services. So, like the earliest memory I have is with CBP and you know USCIS as we're navigating like the you know passport process and being first generation and not having access to the technology we do around like translation services. I was the translator, so I feel like. Unfortunately, a lot of my, you know, childhood was around navigating government services for my parents and my community, right? So um, I guess it's been weighing on me and it just has, it's been the North Star I didn't realize until very recently. I don't know if that's a little long-winded, but. No, I love that because, I mean, first of all, first-person experience, I mean, that, to me, that can motivate anybody, but it reminds me of a conversation I had on this podcast with, um, he's now the former CTO for the city of Toronto, but Lawrence Atta, um, who I have a lot of respect for, talked about his wanting to go into public service and doing those things because of his experiences. He was born in Nigeria, immigrated into the UK and then over to uh, the US and then Canada. And now he's over in Saudi Arabia and but he brought all those experiences with him. And I thought that was, I mean, it's a really cool lens to be able to look through and have it really influence what you want to do. So no, I, I love that. I don't think that I knew it at the time. And you're meeting me at a place where I've done a lot of self-reflection recently on like CX. And it's good timing for me then. <laughs> the common thread, I think that I carry passionately, that's easy to be passionate about is the dignity of it. Right. So I feel like, you know, as an immigrant and as a second language English speaker, watching your parents be, you know, like becoming parentified, I don't know if the word is like becoming a parent <laughs> and taking on that role makes your parents put in this position of difficulty. Right. And it feels altogether like hurtful right? When services and interactions with government feel undignified, when my parents are like 
my universe and my, you know, adult in my life. But, you know, when interacting with government services, it's a totally different parent, right? And I, I don't think I've ever said that before, but dignity is an easy thing to fight for. And it's something I fight passionately for in all aspects of CX work that I do. I love that. And one of the things that I remember reflecting on in the middle of the pandemic, because that very same concept, we think about like unemployment insurance. So many people lost their jobs, lost their livelihood. And we reflect on the dignity of the experience because you you are constantly going and you're reminded you're unemployed. You lost your job. You are in a bad situation. Instead of thinking about uh, a more empathetic way, and that's the word that we would we would lean on, is really the empathy behind that experience. Because a lot of times you're coming to the government because it is a challenging time. And I, I love that you bring that up because it is so important. And even better, I love that that experience that you had is kind of what led you into that. Um, yeah, no, I think that everyone can relate. They don't have to be a first generation immigrant to understand how to, you know, the, mm -hmm. the idea of dignity. And so sometimes when we talk about like DNI and stuff like that, right? Um, it feels like this afterthought and compliance exercise, for yep. example, but it's also easy to passionately fight for DNI because I know at some point in my life, I'll be a beneficiary, just like how it's not just people in wheelchairs that need ramps, right? It's me as a mom in a stroller. It's me who broke my, you know, ankle who needs, you know, and so there's these, um, these ideas of like, you know, personas and what we imagine with government services who we're serving is everyone but that everyone isn't internalized as I am everyone too right so um yeah there's a lot of like emotional I think ties to service delivery excellence that I think a lot of people in reflection would also find themselves agreeing with tell me this I mean having worked with government so much in your role what type of mind share do you think there is around this type of concept and kind of the advancement of CX and human-centered design? But even more than that, the understanding around the emotional element and the empathetic element that goes into customer experience. Well, mind share is a really interesting word. Um, I feel like the mind share of federal and like government employees altogether is one of service anyway, right? So it's applying this new layer of like dignified, seamless, electronic, digital services, right? So now the people who are like tasked with the mission to provide these services are being asked to do it differently. And that is actually fundamentally change, right? So like, um, I always say, I feel like CX really, you know, there's a lot in the commercial sector. It comes from marketing. A lot of times it comes from sales. It comes from, you know, all these different places here. It's coming from the IT shop, which is why it's very digitally lean. But like in general, um, like CX is a function of acknowledging service delivery. And we do not think of government services as something that can be customized, personalized, and seamless because it feels like we have to serve everyone. I don't know if that makes sense, but like there is oh, absolutely. so much about serving everyone that blocks like the use of a persona, 
right? Like, why are we singling out, right? So early on in user experience days, it was just a weird concept. It was just users, like, you know, and so there's macro and micro that happens. There's like this macroeconomic shift of like expectations from the new generation expecting more and different. There's, but there's also this subsequent like micro changes of current being, you know, in which actually like how you serve this group of people is different than equality versus, you know, egalitarian, right? Like it's, it's not, there's all these subtle things happening that it, isn't a matter of just doing surveys, right? Like CX feels so fluffy for a long time, felt fluffy because it felt like, oh, there's emotions and humans involved, but because the government isn't as a entity used to like personifying the recipient, it feels like there's more of an undertaking required to say like, we have to care about people than there should be they're already serving people <laughs> makes total sense and you use the word earlier i'm going to bring it back is compliance so not only not only the different use cases but everybody's coming into it with a different type of experience i mean just think as simply as generational if you're a private sector entity and you take a look and say you know what 75 percent of my customers are this age and of that age, 90% of them have a smartphone. So we're just going to focus on the app, right? Well, they have that luxury wherein government has to serve. And again, to reiterate what you said, they have to serve a hundred percent of their constituency. So they can't afford to say, well, we're just going to focus on serving the people that have the app. They have to say, yeah, we're going to have an app, but we're also going to have in person. We're also going to mail them a letter. We're also maybe, I mean, there, there could be a, a myriad of different ways they're going to engage them but they, they have a compliant necessity to do it and they have resp responsibility to do it. So it's a very different, and in my opinion, it's a little bit larger of a job to be able to tackle some of those things. Right, I think there's just, yeah, in serving everyone, there is this fundamentally uncomfortable notion of person, you know, personalization that is something that is not talked about so much, but became apparent to me when I was working with some design service designers in Belgium, and they were very overt about it. They're like, we can't say we're gonna do, you know, personalized services because that's not equal, right? Like, you know, and it was just like this, oh, like, and then as soon as I got that bug in my head, I realized, oh, people in government are fundamentally uncomfortable with segmentation, right? In a way that, you know, we're fighting for. <laughs> so it's just, um, yeah, the evolution, the mindshare is there, but it, it, it's so spread out on where in that like spectrum do you believe that we should become centric on, on whom, right? So. Um, I'm glad you brought up spectrum because I, I'm curious to get your take here. Um, obviously the executive order around customer experience came out in December of 2021. How much growth, I mean, across that spectrum, and when I say spectrum, I say like best in class spectrum. How much growth have you seen since that executive order came out until today? I think the fact that we're having this podcast reflects a maturity in which we've come very long from like discussing CX as this like nebulous nice to have to this is a critical function of government. So I feel we've 
you know, come a long way. And then now the identification of PISTs, right? Like high-impact service providers and the expansion of that, right? Like what is high-impact service, you know? And then, of course, on performance.gov, you can track all sorts of metrics of all the things they've done. Um, I've been really happy to see recent work done on burden reduction, um, which also has been a niche a niche topic for a while, right? Like Paperwork Reduction Act, right? Because it was like, you know, it was like this thing impeding interaction and information collection with the public, right? So um, I think that just the fact that we're having these such advanced conversations around these things just indicates so much transformation in just the last two years. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. Um, why don't you enlighten the audience a little bit and go deeper into kind of um, the burden reduction that you were just talking about? What are some of the benefits that you're seeing kind of brought to constituents around this and why is it so important? I think that before, like when we talk about CX, it's talking, it was talking a lot about feedback, right? Like voice of the customer. It's also been a lot around call center technologies right? Um, and industry and government have an equal share in how we drive that conversation, right? But reducing burden is uniquely a challenge that the government can do, like, right? Like, it's the government, it's like, the, it makes CX real. Like, we all have to engage it. Right. Like, it's like, people feel burdened in psychological and physical and all sorts of ways of interacting with government and you must reduce it. Like using the word burden in and of itself makes CX real, mm -hmm. right? It's not just nice to have. It's a really right? good point. So I think that, you know, that's with burden. There's like the burden, like there's a new report are out recently. Well, it wasn't that recent, but it was in the last year, um, the time tax report mm -hmm. and it was talking about how 150 billion dollars worth of government benefits are unclaimed right and you know it, with the work that i'm doing with granicus and my colleagues in that when i wear that hat right it's it's like oh my god like we have so much more work to do but we actually finally have this avenue to discuss what it is we're helping with right so like you know and I don't know, like with my company, right? Like we send emails and SMS and stuff. And we're talking a lot about communication and like communication reduces burden, right? Like yeah. I don't have to be the one to go. Knowledge is power. Right. Um, so I think just the idea these concepts are interconnected helps us have discussions we've never had before. No, I, I love that. Tell me a little bit though. And I'm curious to get your opinion here too, because I think you have a really good viewpoint into kind of where things need to go, right? Especially you have a unique perspective coming from a private sector entity supporting CX. You've worked with government for a long time. Um, where do you think the EO fell short? What, what other things could have been added in that you think could have driven or made as real as like the word burden and time tax and things of that nature? I'll bring it, bring it down to two things um, I keep coming back to. It's change in communication, right? Like all of these things are great ideas, but there's been very little guidance. I don't know if anyone else has caught any, right, on how to prepare and execute on the changes 
required in culture technology processes required to reduce burden or provide better service delivery, right? Like it's not coming with, for example, like leadership training for people to say like, if you're gonna do CX, you're gonna have to change part, you know, parts of minds, go do that, right? And then you're completely met with resistance, right? Like, what do you mean you're gonna, we're gonna up, you know, we're gonna digitize this now. Like it, it's, it's where CX people in agencies are being set up not being set up very well with these sort of overarching executive orders and memos that seldom provide guidance on change and how to lead change and how, what they're gonna be given to have the levers of change, right? Like if they were like, you can do CX and the lever of change is like this much money, that's a lever. If this it's this much power or this authority, right? Or this power of enforcement, like it's never coupled in my opinion, like together enough for it to, like take hit the ground running right it's got to be this like build a coalition and change people's minds right and then the other part is communications which is why i'm you know with granicus and it's an intentional move that i made right because i felt like it was the only it was like the next frontier and the next level of it because we are very used to communications as cx in our day-to-day -day lives right so reminders nudges right those are acts of communications. Um, I was reading uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things with Anderson Orwitz or whatever. Yeah, he was like, uh, he was telling me like, communication is inversely related with trust, right? Um, I think he was saying something, it was like, it was like opposite correlation. So like the le less you trust, the more you trust someone, the less you need to communicate with them because I got you, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and with government, that trust isn't there. No matter how like it has improved, that trust isn't there. Like the fact that you feel anxious is just indicative that we still don't trust the, you know, like going into it, we feel anxious that the outcome and the result isn't going to be in our favor, right? So we don't trust. So the more communication you have with someone who has raised their hand to say, I need this service or I'm about to go upon this journey, like the more you can alleviate tension along the way but our government isn't proactively suggesting communications as a function of CX and change at all, right? So, you know, like there's no other separate directive saying like, well, once you have this new program, you know, you need to let people know that mm -hmm. it exists and that this is how you navigate it. Or once they've committed to this funnel, you need to keep communicating with them so that they don't drop out, right? So yep. yeah, changing communications, um, go on all day. About no, absolutely. And I think you talked about trust and another element of that, you, you talked about the outcome, but if I could pull it even back more, it's, it's almost a lack of trust in the process. And I don't, I don't know if that's because I kind of nerd out on these things and I know kind of what the ins and outs of it, but I talked to the beginning about, I'm going to have to go renew my passport before our vacation next summer. And I don't trust that the government has thought through the process to make sure it's seamless and easy. And, and there's anxiety around the fact that it's going to be a challenge. So I think that level of trust too is, is certainly there too, not just the outcome. I mean, to be frank, I trust the outcome. At the end of the day, I'm going to go through a lot of hoops, but in the mail, there's going to be a new passport that comes through. But I don't trust that it's going to be a seamless experience and non-challenging experience, if that makes sense. 
absolutely um i think that first of all the passport process has actually been gotten pretty pretty good it's <laughs> gotten a little but better it's yeah, yeah a little better right um but it, it shows you though it's, it's gotten yeah. better but there's still anxiety around it for sure i think what something you said that was really interesting was i don't i don't trust them to have thought about it and i think it's because you don't know if there's a person who's in charge of thinking about it right so there's a lot of aspects of governance that you know is super nerd out topicable right like you know well, like you touched upon it too communicating that right? right government isn't in the business necessarily of communicating hey we've we've changed this it's easier uh, i i think everybody just kind of assumes it's the same but they haven't had that communication of this is what it looks like now i just think of i mean passports last what 10 years i think of 10 years ago and what i went through and now i'm thinking okay it's going to be this process again but there hasn't been a communication to say hey this is what it looks like now and i think that could also be part of it absolutely um we say all the time like managing expectations and guiding the journey are mm -hmm. the things that government um hasn't even considered as you know functions of communication yet right they're like well if you use plain english i'm like well what if they don't speak english or what if they don't even know the site exists right like it, it's mm -hmm. just that, like where we're starting on the journey isn't is everywhere right now like people some people think cx starts at login and you know, verification and some people think that cx starts at awareness right like when i find out about it is when the journey starts right so mm -hmm. like you know we're not even agreed on where the beginning of the journey is in government yet nonetheless who's in charge of it right so some agencies are having that function and um there's a lot of talk around the chief customer officer for the like, federal chief customer officer there's um, a lot of debate around whether where should the chief to the customer officer be? Should there be another C-suite added to another bureaucracy? Right? Like, and so, um, yeah, it just it's an interesting thing because governance would also create some level of trust. Like, if I don't have a good experience, then this person cares, right now, right? And it's responsible for me having a good experience. But that's happening, but not in mass yet. So you talked about adding another C-suite and having like a chief customer officer um, at each agency, and then it would necessitate a, like a chief customer council and that type of thing. But let me ask you this, where do you see the responsibility falling on private sector? What, what do you think, especially at your role at Granicus, how do you view your role in educating and informing government on best practices and kind of helping them along that journey? I think it's up to the vendors to be able to clearly communicate their point of view on what how they can improve an experience. Like there's no such thing as a CX company per se, mm -hmm. right? I'm gonna get in trouble for saying this, but <laughs> like everyone, it's everyone's job. Yeah. I know I'm not gonna get in trouble for saying that. CX is every part of an organization's job, right? So whether you're providing cybersecurity or you know, cloud or, you know, there is an angle in which if you tie it to outcomes for customers, you are in the business of making experience better, right? Um, like if you go to Costco and you have a great experience, as many people do or don't, right? Like people are willing to go through a lot of trouble to go to Costco. And I'm, I guess my anxiety is going to Costco, you know, <laughs> you know for Thanksgiving and stuff, right? So yeah. It's my mind, but like I, um, there is, there is not this expectation that government services deserve 
somebody in charge of that. And so the vendor community has to meet them where the leadership is inspired, right? So in the absence of you're not supporting directly a C-suite, it's the vendor's responsibility right now for now or duty or preferred channel to encourage adoption of customer experience principles because um, in the work that they're currently providing and doing for the government. Does that make sense? I don't know if I want to. No, it makes sense. I mean, I, I think of it very, very simply, right? It's for me, it's always the responsibility of the party that has the most knowledge to be able to help educate the masses, right? Um, how you do that, I think is important because the last thing you want to do is, I mean, for lack of a better phrase, call call someone's baby ugly. You want to say, hey, you're really bad at this and let me come in and help you. But it's more helping them understand, no, you're actually, it, it's just little tweaks here and there. And I think that's honestly, that's where government is. I, I don't think, um, I mean, we, we've talked about some of the challenges, but I really don't think there's that big of an issue. I think there's little tweaks um, that need to be made and I think that's where the responsibility comes in because of the the type of, I guess, influence that the private sector has had in commercial, right? And the lessons learned that perhaps government, and, and that maybe that's part of it. It's bringing in those lessons learned that government doesn't have yet because they haven't gotten to that level of evolution in their CX journey, if you want to say it that way, um, which actually, I mean, that's a great segue into... Um, what I wanted to bring up with you around um, an article that I know we both saw uh, from FedScoop with uh, a title, Satisfaction with U.S. Government Services is Rising, that a, a report's finding. Um, but help it react to this, that like the subheadline I thought was really strong, react to this. Newly released data from the 2023 American Customer Satisfaction Index federal government report indicates that Americans are happier with their federal government interactions than at any time since 2018 um well my first reaction is well i freaking hope so <laughs> <laughs> we've worked on it so much with yeah. administrations going on digital services ah like god the work and the inertia put into trying to make digital services and you know more accessible and better since that like uh like it's a relief to know subtext to that not a math person, but the fact that we have such a strong jump means that the baseline was so low, right? So, you know, I'm, I think I'm seeing here 13% to 78% on government website quality. Well, I freaking hope so, because I don't know how many millions and billions of dollars we've spent into, you know, mandates and laws and directives around better websites that don't look like they're from 98, right? greatest country on earth need better websites for their agencies right so i really hope that we are continuing to see the momentum i'm glad we have some like metrics to reflect it because people are putting a lot of you know time mm -hmm. and lives into it I, like life spirit into making websites better right so let me let me ask you this i, I just had this conversation with uh bill eggers and don kettle who wrote the book bridge builders and we talked a lot around incentives really driving and we talked about government incentives, but I'm thinking about like constituent incentives and the, the headline goes to 2018. So obviously there's the, 
there's the gap there of the pandemic, right? So we as citizens were really incentivized. There was a necessity to go online and do that. Uh, now, granted, the government didn't have to follow on and, and make things better, but how much do you think the reliance on digital platforms and digital activity has really driven that? I mean, it's everything, right? Like it's what happens when you build trust with people and look, CX, first of all, is not just digital, right? So like the IRS, I know the work mm -hmm. that they're doing at the IRS, you, you need in-person people, right? You, you know, to work with auditors. So people don't want to be on the phone talking about major, you know, going through auditing documents. They don't want to do, there's no way to automate some of these things that are government. Um, so the government currently still has a challenge of maintaining every channel, to make everything available for everyone, right? Um, it just so happens that most people have access, well, enough people have access to the internet that it has become a, a mode of ease. But there's this, there is this segment of population pretty significant and a segment of the services pretty significantly not, not digital, right? Um, so when, as CX people like evangelizing CX and stuff, we try to be very careful not to make it sound like good CX always means digital. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, for example, the veterans affairs, like the hospital system, right? Like they had this awesome initiative um, done by amazing colleagues over there called the Red Jacket Initiative, where like in order to guide people, as soon as they enter, there's people with red jackets asking where they want to go, right? In person, important things, right? Um, and so, you know, I hope that the digital experiences can continue to mature as fast as we have been. Um, to catch up, but overall in government CX, like the end to the end to end journey of it, we have a lot of work to do to make like your passport experience, which is multi touch, seamless, right? Like the going to the post office, you know, syncing, um, and uh, you know the Social Security Administration and the CMS of it all, like right, like they all function around the same life events, for example, and we haven't gotten those life events linked together yet, which is a inherent function of like all the back end, right? Like data sharing and permissions and stuff that result in both digital and in-person experiences that feel redundant and archaic. Um, I'm glad you brought up the, the, like the life milestones and life events um, because with those, some of them are predictable right? A lot of them are predictable, um, but all of them kind of are, they can glean data, right? We can, we can pull data away from them. How much is government looking at the predictability of these types of events and being able to make them better in, in that way, right? You talk about being at Granicus and the communication parts and the nudging well, there's a lot of things that that can be quote unquote nudged in a predictable way to help that experience become better. So I don't say, oh, you know what? I forgot to do this. Or maybe, and certainly I'm procrastinating, but maybe a year ago I got a nudge to say, hey, you might want to take a look at at renewing your passport and this is what you need to do and these are the steps, et cetera. It, it, it really solves that awareness problem that they have of talking about the new process right? And it makes it a little bit better because I immediately think, you know, you know what? They want me to do this. They've obviously thought this through. 
Um, so maybe this experience isn't going to be bad as I think it's going to be. But how much is government really looking about that predictability aspect of these life events? It's hard to answer for my government colleagues, right? Um, <laughs> there are many, many really brilliant people working on things around behavioral psychology mm -hmm. um, that are considering all of this. And a lot of the basis for the research that has fueled this in other parts of the world is, you know, largely based on behavioral sciences around that kind of predictability, non-predictability, non-rationality of people, right? Um, so, for example, I think I read an article from the Wall Street Journal saying millennial savings rates for retirement is really high because they opted, it's an opt-in, or it's an opt-out, meaning they get automatically opted into this program and they have to choose to opt out to get out of this very like beneficial savings program. So those are ways in which we can use like be predictable behavior, you know, information. Um, that's going to take a lot of sophistication right and acceptance of human fallacies mm -hmm. um but in general like predictive like i feel like there are parts of government that i'm not even sure of that are using much more of that like in dhs and the facial recognition and like a lot of the like security like related emerging technologies like they have more uh use cases around that and then, of course, there's good old-fashioned best practice exchanges for things like pandemic, right, where we create new neural networks so that if something happens again, we can, like, respond better, right? And I think there was, you know, several of those initiatives that came out of natural disasters um, from FEMA, right, like, where how do we respond to, you know, major weather catastrophes, um, like, I think this year we did that whole national, like, alert system, didn't we, mm -hmm. um, with phones and stuff. Um, which like is one of those things where we couldn't account for everybody's use cases where if you had like a, a phone that was secret because you're not, you're in a hostile or abusive situation and you don't want your phone to go off, like we needed to have given people ample warning, right? So there's all sorts of things that we're trying to do that hasn't been quite perfected yet. And there's just nothing but opportunity and like space for creativity and collaboration coming in the next couple of years around CX. So it, I think that that leads me into a, the next segment I want. And what I really want to do in the, the spirit of this question is to bring an article that you just published to life where you talked about some things that federal leaders should consider as they develop their CX improvement plan. So obviously, the White House laid out in the executive order thoughts that they have. There was a recent memo that came out in September where they talked about kind of advancements around that and, and again, focus points. But what what's some advice that you give it to federal leaders on ways they can improve and things that, that bare minimum they should consider as they're building out plans to improve what their customer experience journey looks like? I think I'll go back to my two points on changing communication, right? When I was a UX designer and I was trying to get these requirements out of the business, right? They were, they were being very hostile. They were like, no, we don't have time for you. Like, even though it's my job to gather the requirements. And I remember thinking like, why are they being so hostile? Like, I just want to do my, you know, I was young mm. at the time and um, I realized it's because in the nature of automating and creating modernizing there's this transformation that's happening to their business structure and they felt quite threatened that you know if they automate this portion of something then 
they're not going to have the same job to come back to, right? Even though, you know, there's federal, there are federal employees, which is why it makes it so much more tenable that communicating often and frequently as leadership to say, this is how we're going to manage this change. Like, if you can help us, like, get this legacy system off the ground, then we will invest in you in ABC ways. And these are the things that we really need your brilliant mind for doing. And that sort of communication never happens. Like, I feel like it's never discussed. We don't talk about how it impacts the workforce when we try to bring emerging technology or CX or any any kind of change into the ecosystem. We storm and form again. That's the nature of like, right, of, of, of team dynamics. So every time they introduce a new EO or a new directive, new office, new leader, it's change and there's this storming forming and it's as if we can never get out of that because we don't consider the emotions of the employees and like the team that are at play here. And so I think um, whenever I have any like ear time with CIOs or, you know, C-suites, I'm like, have you considered like your readiness for this change as an organization or have you communicated the effects as a leader that would help alleviate tension in the organization, right? So I would go back to those two things. Makes a lot of sense. And I brought up in the opening that um, obviously you, you're you a CX leader at Granicus, but you're now recently an adjunct professor at UVA. And I bring that up because you and Martha Doris have kind of built out this customer experience leadership institute. And I want to give you an opportunity to talk about this because uh, I saw through LinkedIn, you guys just went through your first cohort. Um, and I think it's incredible because you're you're bringing and kind of bridging the gap between private sector, public sector, and best practices um, and helping educate the masses. So tell the listeners a little about what you're doing here. Thing is that having not been in federal government and having supported them very closely, that I felt like a sense of guilt that I couldn't like be there, right? Like I couldn't, I don't carry the weight that they do, but you know, I can just, do the work part of the work I like and then move on to the next part of the work. <laughs> so there's been this perpetual feeling for me, at least on like, how do I contribute to the conversation in CX in a tangible and meaningful way in the way that I can authentically do so. And so when UVA contacted me, because, you know, as an alumni, they were like, well, what are you up to? Right. And they needed to establish Northern Virginia presence. I told them about the work I was doing with CX and with Martha and, um, and sort of the impact of good and great that it has, which is sort of our school's like motto, right? Like you do good and great. And um, so when we brought that up, I when I was talking to Martha about doing this program, we were like, let's build capacity, right? Like now that we've stirred up a whole bunch of ideas and there's all of these EOs and it's taken on its life of its own, now let's go back to that building of the community and capacity that is required for something to truly stick, right? Um, and so I felt like um, government people and industry needed a safe middle ground to learn and explore best practices without the pretension of industry influence, right? And so we had a really great ratio of like, I think 35 beds and like 15 industry. And, you know, those kinds of things are only possible in that academic environment, right? Mm -hmm. So 
Um, it was a, a, a labor of love and intention on how to build capacity for the CX community. And we hope to see a second round in the spring with a, we have a wait list of 20-ish people now already, and we only allow like 40 or 50, I think, max. So, you know, halfway there already to the next session, just a little plug. If he, um, yeah, no, if people are listening to this and they're wondering how they can get involved or even be part of that that second group, um, where can they go? Um, I think UVA has a site. I don't know the site name by heart yet. It's called, but if you Google UVA Customer Experience Leadership Institute, there is a landing page and a join the waitlist button. And our amazing team at UVA will, you know, been have been collecting that. So great. Uh, so as, as we get into the end of the year, um, I love this time of year because it's when people start making some predictions, which are absolutely sure to go wrong mostly. But I'm curious to know. Um, I mean, you, you live and breathe customer experience every single day. You're obviously passionate about it, which we've we've established during this conversation and several others. Um, what are some of the things that you think will happen in the next year that could possibly drive change and make customer experience better, more to to use use a word we talked about, more empathetic, right? Bring dignity to the experience. Um, every year that goes by actually does so much more like because you 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 spent you like conceptualizing government things move slowly but actually so much can happen in a year so i'm mm -hmm. full of excitement um around the conversations we have been having about that communications aspect of things um but there's also this um bubbling demand happening because of the generational shift that's happening to like you know allow more Gen Z and millennial like workforce to come in. So there's this, um, if you, there's this critical mass that's being like, it's like, you know, the Chuck E. Cheese machine or like the David Buster machine where there's like the coin and then you put a coin in and then it pushes it a little bit, but you, you know, so if you mm -hmm. get the coin to like fall, you all of a sudden get a ton of coins that fall, right? I don't know how to describe that machine, but it feels like we've been doing a lot of it and it's about due time that there's critical mass for us to really consider an, um, like a earnest examination of customer experience, leadership and governance in every agency. So it's maybe like wishful thinking, but it's that not every agency, so to clarify, not every agency has CX leaders designated, right? Or offices designated or resources, right? And it's just my wish that because of the critical mass of the bubbling that's been happening, that every agency is going to have some trace of CX activity um, that arises organically from people being inspired for service delivery excellence. Um, uh, and I think that we'll, we might see more of that come through. I love that. No, and I, I totally agree. I think uh, maybe the phrase you were looking for, like CX is at a tipping point where it can, re it's really ready to swing in the, that, that next direction and kind of knock those dominoes down and bring it down. So I know I absolutely agree. Um, so no, I think a, a prediction and or wish, I think that's a, that's a really good one. Um, and as, as we start to wrap up uh, before I get into my final five, we're entering the holiday season. I want to know, this is mainly because you just posted something on LinkedIn with uh with a picture of elf 
with Will Ferrell as Elf. But I want to know, Charlotte, what is your favorite Christmas movie going into this season? What's one that you you can't go through the season without watching? Um, every year I make my boys and I like watch um, Mean Girls, which I think counts as a Christmas movie. Does it? Does it count as a Christmas movie? Yeah, it's like the they do the dance, the school, <laughs> the um, Jingle Bell Rock song. It's iconic. Um, I love but it. That I love, love actually. That's like I'm oh, that's a great one. That is a great one. Right. I I like that one a lot. For me, I in our family we Elf is a classic one, um, which made me bring that up. But um, I personally love a Christmas story, so I usually on christmas eve and christmas day i have a christmas story playing 24 7 in the background thank goodness for tbs um but i won't watch it until until christmas eve but i i love that movie it's so uh it's so classic you like there's only one there's only one version charlotte it's okay. it's the it's the og version okay, the og yeah with ralphie you shoot your eye out that's the one you got to go for okay i'll give that <laughs> one watch oh yeah. yeah um so let's jump into our final five um, I'm curious to get some of these answers from you. So let's start with the first one. What's the best advice that you've ever gotten? Um, you can have everything, but not at once. I like that. That's good. What about the worst advice that you've ever gotten? Um, wait your turn. Ooh, I like that one a lot. Okay. Yeah. Um, who is someone in history that you would like to have a conversation with? Um, I just finished watching Catherine the Great and, um, on Hulu, and I think she's amazing. I would love to talk to her. <laughs> Excellent. And <laughs> anything, any, anything specific you would ask? I mean, how did you know, how did you know you were better fit? You know, what was the point in which you were like, my... I'm going to kick my husband off because he is just not, you know, I just like love this idea that a woman was like, you know what? I don't think this is going to, you know, and she, she did all sorts of like maneuvers um, to bring enlightenment to Russia. And I just, she's an underappreciated character actually. And I just, um, if like, if people know me personally, they, they would know that I'm, it would, that would be totally on brand of me to like, be like, let's talk about a queen that usurped, her throne from her husband. I love it. <laughs> so, so let's talk about what's inspiring you right now. What is inspiring you right now? Oh my gosh. Um, the Sam Altman firing fiasco with Microsoft. I know that's crazy, but for a long time, um, for a long time, I've been a huge advocate for ethics and AI. And um, so I had started this organization called First Ethics and trademarked ethical modernization. And I have been obsessed with this and I kind of gave up on it during COVID, um, even though I had this like amazing board ready to go. And I, I was like, I guess the conversation will just run away. And to see that, you know, the topic at the center of all of the back and forth on that is the use of AI and ethics is bringing me so much joy and like I told you so moments and you know like you know there's so that's been really interesting to follow in the last 48 hours no that's really cool I think in the past year um obviously open open AI and and everything has really bubbled the ethics around AI to the service and it's been kind of a 
underlying conversation around things, but I think it's become a very mainstream conversation that's important for us to have. So I, I that's a very good inspiration to have right now. And and finally, so I, I will tell you, you have brought so much into this conversation. Um, and you've obviously thought through a lot of this and been influenced by a lot of things. So I am really curious, more so maybe than anybody I've asked, where do you go to self-educate? Oh, this is a hot take. Okay. You are probably never going to want to associate with me after this again. <laughs> I have got to say in the last year, TikTok has been incredible. Like it has been such an interesting way to learn and absorb information in a way that I would myself not have been able to create, bringing perspectives and um, storytelling in a way that has really opened my eyes up to what the future is going to look like. Um, so like TikTok tells me to re buy these books from, you know, like TikTok doesn't tell me anything. The people who are on TikTok, the content yeah. makers on TikTok do a very good job influencing me to read the books by giving me a beautiful one minute summary on what I'm going to get out of it. And it is exactly what my ADHD brain needs to absorb just the right information to make the action. And so I've been reading all sorts of books. Um, I never would have considered like, well, this one's not very inspirational, but how to sell value demystified, right? Like I was, you know, they've picked up on this like my search for understanding value creation. So then they started giving me all these books and all these influencers and economists that I never would have, you know, leaned into. And I've just, I've loved it. I'm a big TikTok fan. One last question then. What have you learned from TikTok and books that you're reading that have helped you from a storytelling perspective? You you mentioned that it kind of yeah. makes, takes that story into a concise one minute Mm -hmm. release what has it taught you and how to tell a story a little bit better i once saw a tiktok about a, a clip it was a clip of a documentary about how um not all ants are busy and how that within a colony of uh ants there are some ants that are lazy by design it's so that when their high performers get fired that these you know reserve ant lazy ants come in and you know like uh, you know, keep the momentum, whatever they, they take up the pick up the slack. Right. And, but they can't do that unless you have a reserve. Right. So not, so, um, and then I also, you know, was reminded by TikTok similarly that bears hibernate and so do trees and that nature requires us all to rest and have times of rest and that without sufficient and maybe even strategic points of rest that we don't have the fuel as people to keep going and burning ourselves out. And I just thought, like, I didn't know there were lazy ants. And that sometimes in the season of my life, I have to be a lazy ant. And sometimes I have to be a very busy ant. So. Interesting. Well, I, I can't say I'm going to go jump on TikTok, but I think you've definitely sold me on there. There's value there for sure. Oh, yeah. So no, that's, that's very interesting. Well, hey, Charlotte, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be here, to share your insights around customer experience. I think you made it very clear that government has obviously made made progress, that there's obviously improvement areas everywhere, that, and there's always improvement areas everywhere. And I think you've left people with some things to think about to help and improve those areas. So thank you again for being here and really sharing uh, those insights with us. Thank you for having me.
This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittistray B. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.